So some of the things that we heard that people were upset with was racist art that was on the walls of Second City. And I, at first, didn't understand what they were talking about. Our then-executive producer, John Carr, and I said, let's go down, let's do an art audit, and let's walk around and see if we can spot what people are talking about. Paul, if you had been with us, you would have been like, no! Like, you can... Do <laughs> you remember in the main stage, you've got that Dan Castellaneta as Hitler? You have a photo of Hitler. Like, a guy yeah. playing Hitler. There's no context. If you're a Jewish person, you come in, you just see Hitler on the wall. Oh, that's not good. And then... <laughs> Okay. Angle, yeah. Angle people in some uh, sombreros. So many people in turbans, and th- it's like white people, American Indian headdress. It was like Mike Myers in dreads. It was <laughs> yeah. this I can, close to blackface. I can picture all these because I think maybe like it was Jim Zulovic in a sombrero. I yes, remember right. seeing that. But you're right. Out of context, you uh, walk in and you see Dan Castellaneta as Hitler. I think instantly, oh, that's from. And I don't remember now anymore what show it was from, but I'm like, oh, that's an iconic show. From which show was it? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Paul Vato Presents. I am your host, Paul Vato. Today, my very special guest is Mr. Kelly Leonard. He is the creative director of Applied Improvisation at the Second City Works. That's is it. the title? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I've been there a long time. Yes, and. Yes, and. That's it. Kelly, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your time with us here on Fireside. And then I will convert this into a a podcast that will hopefully be seen and heard all over the world. So I sincerely do appreciate you being here. And thank you very much. I am Uh, happy to be here. And I always need more technology in my life to try to master. (laughs) I sense that you might be a little sarcastic with that comment because I know every time a new app pops up, I'm like, oh, not another one. But I discovered Fireside. It's owned by Mark Cuban. And it's very cool. I had to do a thing on Substack. And I was like, what? And then I actually deleted my TikTok app. I can't do it. I've decided. I'm sure the people that know TikTok would tell you that you would kill it on TikTok. But it's like anything else. You have to post daily if you're looking to yeah. grow your right. TikTok or Instagram. It's not just kids dancing. Oh, no. The, it's the huge wealth of knowledge that you have would really benefit people on TikTok. I think they would love to hear from you. It's another thing that you have to do. So I get it. You only have so many hours in the day and you have to figure out where you're going to put your attention. It's always such a noisy world that we live in. And certainly the work that I've done both at Second City and improvisation and comedy, but also working with behavioral science community has taught me I really need to focus on where my attention is. And I want that on mostly on other people, friends, family, in nature, and in play. We just don't, like, we get old, we get older, and we have less and less opportunities to play, and that's not good for us. That's great that you would say that. I've spoken to several people, especially from my early days there at Second City and in the Chicago improv scene, and that seems to be a recurring theme. As we get older, we forget that we have to play, that we should be playing, and Del Close used to mention that As we got older, we'd forget to play and we have to allow ourselves to do that. So thank you for bringing that up and hopefully reminding the people that are listening to this that you have to play even as we get older. So thank you. Yeah, sure. Let's start maybe at Second City and where you grew up and things like that. And I think I already know the answer. Tell us a little bit about your family and if they were maybe supportive of the career choices that you've made and things like that. I guess let's maybe put it out there. Your father 
was a Chicago icon, Roy Leonard. I grew up listening to him on WGN. I'm sure that there's a lot of other things. And finally, when I put the two and two together or found out the internet wasn't as prevalent in the 1900s, it wasn't right. like you could search someone. Would you mind touching a little bit on that and talking a little bit about your family? Yeah, so my dad had a television and radio career in Boston. That's where he started out. That's where he met my mom. And his station went rock, and he hosted a talk show. So he started sending out his tapes of him on the air, and he got an invitation to come sub for Wally Phillips for a week. So Wally Phillips back in the day was the top-rated radio guy. He had something like a 46 share, which is just no one has that anymore. It didn't exist. So my dad did well, and they offered him the show right after Wally. So he moved. We were first in Deerfield. I'm the youngest of six kids, so I was a baby when we moved. We were in Deerfield for a year, and then they bought a home in Kenilworth. We were, uh, I think, Jimmy Corain's family were the first Catholics in Kenilworth right before us. We were the second Catholic family to move in. It was very different in those days. Being the youngest of six to a dad who went to a ton of theater and movies and concerts, it was great. I got exposed to so much different culture. And really what was funny is most of my brothers went into very respectable jobs like banking and architecture and newspaper business. And then when I came home after my last day of college and said to my dad, I want to be a playwright, he was like, finally, <laughs> one of my kids wants to get into the entertainment industry because that's what he always loved. So no, he was really supportive. And what he did for me, he got me two informational interviews. I interviewed with Rock Schulfer at the Goodman, who's the executive director still there, and Bernie Sollins, who was the co-founder of Second City. He had sold Second City by that time and was building a new theater called the Willow Street Carnival. And Bernie offered me a job on the spot. He said, come work for me. It starts in six months and I'll get you a gig at Second City in the meantime. Well, of course, I thought I was going to be like VP of marketing. So I show up and I'm escorted to the back bar and I'm a dishwasher, which is just a horrendous job. The other guy who got hired the same week that I did was John Favreau, the film director. And we both had mullets. That's how I started out. <laughs> so this nepotism didn't quite work out to your liking right away, if you will, because here you are thinking... Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go right to the front office, and they're like, "Get in the back, kid." Yeah, exactly. No, it was terrible. Look, the second city in those days was filled with alcoholics and sociopaths. So I learned a lot. Mike Myers and Bonnie Hunt were on the main stage. Jane Lynch was in the ETC. Chris Farley had just been hired in the touring company. It was an amazing time to learn, and did not know that Second City created its show through theatrical improvisation. I was aware of improvisation in a variety of other contexts. I was a deadhead. I loved jazz. And I did my thesis on the beat writer Jack Kerouac in his spontaneous beat prosody, basically improvisational writing. So I had a yen for that work, but just didn't know how it expressed itself in theater and comedy. And you work at Second City and you get an education of a lifetime figuring out how this stuff works, how it gets put together, how it gets taken apart. I was still writing plays. I moved up to hosting. I then worked in the box office. I left to go work for the Willow Street Carnival, which was a disaster, and it folded. And that's when I came back and worked in the box office and was trying to write that whole time. And then in 1992, out of nowhere, I got offered the job as associate producer of the Second City, and I took it. You truly worked your way up the ranks yeah. and almost rather quickly because you started there, what, in 88? Yeah, yeah. So Joyce Sloan, who was the producer before me, had a series of heart attacks and strokes. And I think she always thought her daughter Cheryl would take over, but Cheryl had left the business by then. And honestly, there wasn't anyone. And I showed up on time. I'm very lucky in that I was in the right place at the right time. Not that it was easy. The first 
few years were real tough, but I figured out the job and, and I think I had a pretty good run. You absolutely did. How long were you there in that capacity? Was there another promotion? And then ultimately... Associate producer to producer to vice president, uh, executive vice president of the Second City. And then I founded a, a, a division called Second City Theatricals that did plays and musicals and other kinds of performance pieces uh, that still exists today. And I did all of that basically from 92 to 2015 when I co-wrote the book Yes And with Tom Yorton, who runs our corporate division. And then I stepped down. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I just knew I didn't want to keep doing the thing I was doing. And I was able to make this pivot inside the organization after about a year and said, I'm really interested in the learning space. I'm interested in academic insights that would support the theories that we have about why improvisation is so important in life, in business, in collaborating, in creativity and innovation. And I started a project called the Second Science Project at the University of Chicago, working with some amazing scientists. And all this then reflected back to what I do now, which is in addition to hosting a podcast for Second City and doing a lot of speaking dates and a lot of writing, and I do a lot of business development. I find interesting partners for us and we create new stuff. And that's just something that I've always enjoyed doing. And I did it for so long on stage. Now I do it off stage. I love the way that you've brought together the world of this education, but a scientific approach to improv. Is this only for students at the University of Chicago, or is there a course, or is there something that you're developing? We did the Second Science Project for four years, and what we developed was a series of orientation programs for University of Chicago, undergrad, grad, and the law school uses them now. We created executive education programs, so we take this out into the corporate world. I think we're about to start it back up with UCLA. My partner, Heather Caruso, who used to be at University of Chicago, is at UCLA. We're talking about and restarting it. It's a, many domains, right? We can bring it into the classroom and the training center. We can take it to our corporate learning spaces. And the thing I love about it is, in addition to these programs, we're doing studies. We have a study, I think it's coming out next year, the concept of yes and. And when we teach this exercise, there's already tons of literature and evidence in academia to support why it makes sense. Chiefly in behavioral economics, we know that people's default setting is to do nothing or say no. And yes, and is like a nudge to do the other. And it's a stepping stone in creativity. The scientists we work with ask the question, what happens when, what's the prompt for when you don't want to yes and someone, when you're fundamentally in disagreement, but you need to stay inside the conversation? We discovered sort of together that the prompt is thank you because... So if someone disagrees with you, thanking them for their opinion means that they're not, you're not setting off the fear part of the brain or the defensive part of the brain. And the because is you find some point of agreement, no matter how small, it's usually foundational or purpose-driven, things like that. And then if you both do that, you have such a better opportunity to get to a place of some form of agreement or understanding. And this is such a powerful technique. We did it with thousands of people. That's why the paper's taking so long to come out. But the world we live in right now, like no one wants to work together. It's never been this bad, like in, in my experience. And if we could just enter rooms with curiosity instead of blame, if we could enter rooms with a thank you because orientation, I think we have a shot at doing this. The reverse is anarchy. And this is not to say we need to let oppressive systems 
or individuals get away with it. We don't. But I think most people want the same stuff. They don't want to be harmed. They want people to be nice to each other. <laughs> they want to live in comfort, all these things. Dan Gilbert is a professor at Harvard who's quite brilliant. And he says that we share so much more as human beings than we don't, that if an alien came down and met one human being, they'd understand 90% of humanity. So we should be able to do this and not be at each other's throats. Wow, that's some powerful stuff. It's the first time I'm hearing of thank you because... And you're right, it automatically disarms you a little bit. Now I'm not going to go into that defensive of just arguing and not listening and not being in the moment. That's some brilliant stuff. Where can people read about this somewhere or where can we follow along in this journey? Or yeah. are, you're also available, I would imagine, to speak gigs. And where can people find you, Kelly? What's the best place? Uh, they to... can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter are probably the two places. My podcast drops every Tuesday. We talk with a variety of scientists, academics, creative people, business leaders, about these kinds of ideas. I write about them on places like LinkedIn and Twitter. My Twitter handle is KL Second City. Just look up my name on LinkedIn. I love people to connect. The Second City gets hired. The Second City works, which is the B2B arm of the Second City. We do hundreds, like anywhere from 500 to 600 learning engagements all over the world every year. We did the pivot like everyone else did to virtual. We are back live. I'm getting booked like crazy now in live spaces. I think people are realizing what they missed. It was amazing that we could do this. It was amazing that we could make that pivot. There's a lot of stuff about it that's terrific, but there's nothing that beats human beings in a room together. That's 100%. I'm in Vegas right now and everything is coming back. We have a big cigar convention. I'm in the cigar world as well. Yep. There's a big cigar convention going on right now and it's so great to see everyone back and uh, in person. And we still have to be careful, I think, but it's, it is, it's so refreshing. I'm glad that we were able to survive and do it through the virtual world, but you're right. We're coming back and hopefully a hundred percent. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Greetings, my Vatos Locos, and welcome to another episode of Paul Vato Presents. I want to sincerely thank you for tuning in. People have been asking what they can do to help support our program. And well, the easiest way is to just head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a like, give us a follow, maybe leave us a review. Also, maybe head on over to Spotify and do the same thing. We're on all the podcasting platforms. So give us a like, give us a follow, share it with your friends. You can also head on over to paulvato.com. And from there, you can follow us across all social media. There's also a link to our Patreon. So for $3, less than a cup of coffee a month, you can help support our program and it would be really appreciated. So thank you for your time. And now back to Paul Votto Presents with our very special guest. Thank you. It's funny that Karain's family was the first Catholic family in Kenilworth. Yeah. What was there before or what was the predominant? Oh, religion? Protestant white Protestant. So we were the second Catholic family. There was a black family that moved down the street from us. That was the first one in, and this is in the seventies. And I think it isn't slowly a Jewish family. It's more diverse now. It's not that diverse. Kenilworth could be referred to as one of these sundown communities, which is a term for the sort of racist policies of not letting you know, people of color and people from diverse communities buy real estate in those places. And that was prevalent in the North Shore. I am, of course, it would be no surprise as you are on the left liberal spectrum. The sort of intolerance that our folks complain about on the right, I think, I wish there was a little more self-awareness of the intolerance that exists on the left as well. And I think because of the systemic oppression that has 
that we see and we understand and was horrible and we need to change and we need to challenge, that can live in concert with being kind. And I know the activists who I'm close with, and I'm close with many people in the activist community, in particular, Ai-jen Poo, who's part of Supermajority, is one of our, my wife and I are best friends, and our colleagues are kind. They fight, but they laugh, and they talk to people who think differently than them, and they don't see that as a threat. They see it as an opportunity. There's so much change that needs to happen, and we've gone woke. We've woken up to a lot of the shit, and that's important that we not stop fixing that stuff, these big problems. It's just that we can't let that take away from this idea of a shared humanity that includes lots of different people who may not think or vote like we do. And that is okay. I grew up not very far from Highland Park. My mom shopped at the Sunset Foods, the grocery store that was right near where that shooting took place on Monday. And these events just don't stop happening. I think there's a reason. And I think there's a kind of toxicity and poison in our culture. And I think a lot of that has to do with us not respecting difference. That is so true. And speaking of race and maybe integration, yeah. how has the second city evolved in that? I can only speak from my experience. I feel like I never experienced it because it wasn't like second city was saying no Latinos. There were no Latinos doing improv, really. There was just a handful of us. And that's why we put together Salsation, which then became Barrio Speedwagon in LA. We did our show Touched by an Anglo at Donnie's Skybox. I always feel when I speak to people like you and from the Second City, I always want to say thank you because Salsation still exists today, 25 years later. And the Second City was a big part of it. You guys allowed us to do our show there and ply our craft. I never felt like I experienced any, no, improv is not, it's only for white people, That, but that's all who was doing it. We're the ones that need to come out of our shell and experience it. It wasn't in, in our wheelhouse. I think we have to acknowledge it's complicated and that there's nuance and we live in a world that isn't especially interested in nuance. I have learned so much during this period and things that I'm, I have some shame about in the past and other things that I think are, that I'm proud of. If you read Something Wonderful Right Away, which is an oral history of Second City, there is racist, clearly racist viewpoints spouted by alumni of the theater. That's true. Andrew Alexander, who took a lot of heat when the whole George Floyd thing happened and basically resigned and then sold the business, he started the first outreach program and put resources and money and personnel towards diversity efforts decades before anyone else in the community was doing that. I think the problem was numbers of people on stage are not enough. And there's a difference between diversity and equity that we didn't really understand as a company. And I think we certainly started to learn it. And we've had very diverse casts for years, but a lot of those people didn't have the support they needed. And there were people who definitely had problems. All the people who were running the company essentially are gone. And that happened, again, George Floyd and COVID. And we got sold to, to ZMC, a private equity company, who I like very much, actually, that they've been hugely supportive. We have a great new alumni board that's pretty diverse and they're going to be artistic advisors to us and we're primarily led by women and people of color right now and the old white guy me is here to support them let me give you an example so some of the things that we heard that people were upset with was racist art that was on the walls of second city and i at first didn't understand what they were talking about our then executive producer, John Carr, and I said, let's go down, let's do an art audit and let's walk around and see if we can spot what people are talking about. 
Paul, if you had been with us, you would have been like, no, like you can. Do you remember in the main stage, you've got that Dan Castellaneta as Hitler. You have a photo of Hitler, like a guy yeah. playing Hitler. There's no context. If you're a Jewish person, you come in, you just see Hitler on the wall. Oh, that's not good. And then, <laughs> okay, Anglo, yeah, Anglo people in some uh, sombreros, so many people in turbans, and, th- and it's like white people, American Indian headdress. It was like Mike Myers in dreads. It was <laughs> yeah. this I can- close to blackface. I can picture all these because I think maybe like it was Jim Zulovic in a sombrero. I yes, remember right. seeing that. But you're right. Out of context, you walk in and you see Dan Castellaneta as Hitler. I think it's like, oh, that's from, and I don't remember now anymore what show it was from. But I'm like, oh, that's an iconic show. From which yes. show was it? I don't know. I can't remember. It was something in the 80s. Jim Zulovic, I still clearly remember him. He's the one in the Mexican sombrero. Yep. And maybe Sarape. I don't know. Maybe I need to be more woke because... I would just remember seeing all those and just thinking that they're art, but instantly tying them into the second city. But I could see where somebody could walk in and go, what the fuck is this? Look, I don't know necessarily that we need to apologize for comedy that hasn't aged well as long as we age well. Like when Seinfeld says he can't tour colleges, I'm like, fucking, you know, why not try update your act then? And by the way, no one has a problem. Seinfeld doesn't do stuff that people get upset about. The Chappelle thing just drives me crazy. Chappelle is so talented, like... Really, you want to go after trans folks? You think that they're the population that we need to be punching at? Like the suicide rate isn't enough to say, do you maybe find a different target? It doesn't even make any sense to me. You don't have to lose edge. It doesn't mean losing edge. My friend Dolly Chug, who's a social scientist, says if we could think about diversity, inclusion, and equity like we do our tech, we know our iPhone needs to be updated every few months. So does our language and our ideas. It's just updating. It's not surrendering. That is such a great analogy. It makes perfect sense. But there are people out there that are like, oh, no one will ever get me to change. You're like, that's fucking well, not involved. Why are you proud of that? Well, you yeah. want to be lifelong learners. Like, you you really think you figured it all out? Here's one thing. I'm 55 years old. have a great career, happy marriage, kids, all that stuff. Success by anyone's regard. I know nothing. What I have learned is that I know so little that... The opportunity for me to learn more, to improve, to make new friends, all that stuff increases by the thousands if I express myself with humility when I walk into a room, when I enter a conversation. I learn so much more. I never want to be the smartest person in the room. If I'm that, I'm not learning, and it's a drag. You can learn from anyone. People have amazing stories, and if you give them an opportunity to make space for those stories your life will be better. A hundred percent. That was one of the things that I always try to incorporate. That's one of the things I learned from Del Close again, which was everyone has a story to tell. Because I remember we did our show that he directed, which was an unauthorized autobiography. That was one of the things was everyone has a story to tell. And Kelly, I try to do exactly what you're doing. I feel like you can learn from everyone, whether it was growing up in Chicago or then being in LA and then now in Las Vegas, where you meet a cast of characters is the range from the homeless person to the executive casino owner, billionaire. And I try to learn what I can from everybody and be open to that. So thank you for sharing that. What happened to the artwork then that you audited? Took it down and replaced it with less less racist artwork. We took it down and it didn't need to be there. And again, I can't stress enough how creating a space of inclusion does not mean you're betraying 
the most important things about your work, because the most important things are everything you learn there in the improv field in terms of making your partner look good. We still dare to offend. We're going to cross the line and that's fine as long as we know how to find our way back because the line changes. This is the other thing in our contemporary world that doesn't like nuance. It also doesn't like context. The minute context and nuance, like they shift all the time. My wife is finishing up her second book. It's on comedy theory. And she talks about the elements of comedy, which include pain and distance and recognition. When you're making comedy, it's like a mixing board. Sometimes you're dialing up the pain. Sometimes you're dialing it down. After the events of Highland Park, do you really want to make a bunch of mass shooting jokes? Probably not that day. Maybe not in a week, three months, four, maybe. And then it's going to be harder to do it in Chicago because of our proximity, our distance to Highland Park. Whereas in Vegas, that might not be a problem, though you have mass shootings there. All those elements are at play, and you've got to constantly be aware because there's no five-step, seven-step to anything. Anyone who's trying to like sell you a book that's all you need is ripping you off. The great thing about improvisation is that it's not a seven-step view of the world. It's giving you tools and suggested practices for engaging other human beings. And if you're constantly sort of paying attention to that, like being fiercely in the moment, as I said, making your partner look good, all those things, when to add something else to the mix or take something away. And that's why I think in many ways, so many people who go through the second city system have been so successful is not just because they learn that stuff on stage, they learn it off stage. It makes them better business people. It really does, 100% does. That's something that I wanted to create, which is this improv for executives and corporate people and business people. It was instrumental because my first love is entrepreneurship. I don't think we called it that back then, but I don't know if you know this, but when I was at the Second City and studying improv, I started at Improv Olympic first, rest in peace. I, I interviewed Brandy Stillwell, and every time she says the I.O. or uh, Improv Olympic, she always follows it up with rest in peace. She's got a great book out too. She's wonderful. I owned an, a gourmet ice cream and coffee shop in the suburbs in Geneva, Illinois. It was Overweiss. It was an Overweiss dairy of Geneva. So that's why my journey to improv started a little bit later. I wanted to learn how to do stand-up and I wound up at the Improv Olympic trying to learn how to do stand-up. And Sharna's like, we don't teach stand-up. We teach improv. I'm like, Marty Page is so. And then I fell in love with the art form. And then of course, right after that, discovered Second City. This would have been in like 97. And a year later, after I think getting kicked off of the team at IO, because I wasn't studying again, but I'd already studied with Dell a couple times. I then had the idea of Salsation. And we're like, well, why doesn't Second City have, they've got red co, green co, blue co, why not brown co type yeah. of a thing? So we're like, let's just do it ourselves. I feel like all these things that I learned at Second City definitely applied to the business person then that I continued to be. And when I sold everything and moved to LA and just sold cigars to support my acting habit, the power of yes and is just so powerful. And now that you've taken this whole scientific approach to it too, that really fascinates me, Kelly. That is such amazing so, work that you're doing. So there's a new project that, that we're involved in, which touches on everything you're talking about. So I had interviewed Sunil Gupta for the podcast. Sunil is an entrepreneur. The Rise app was his, his brother is Sanjay Gupta. This book he wrote called Backable was amazing. And I actually gave it to my wife to read and she loved it. Sunil calls me, this is like a few months after we did the podcast, and said he had been contacted by... Northwestern, where he is an alum, the Farley School for Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and they wanted him to do a class on Backable. And he's like, I don't think I can do it alone. Would you want to collaborate? My wife is a tenured professor of comedy and improvisation and a Northwestern grad. So I put those two together and she just finished the class and it got amazing response because we were bringing 
Sunil's ideas about entrepreneurship and improv practices to these kids who are maybe going to be engineers and some want to do startups. Literally, we have a call today and I was looking at all the feedback from the kids and they keep talking about how the status exercises, the storytelling exercise, the idea of yes and as a way to get more ideas. This stuff resonated in a way that they were saying they've not experienced in any of their other classes. It was such a great experience to realize, oh no, great practice for being a startup entrepreneur would be putting on a show because you have to do everything. Yes. You got to get the people, you got to market the thing, you got to name the thing, you got to do the thing, you got to figure out how the money happens. It's like, oh my God, this is that is classic preparation for startup culture. If, if you can put up a show and some are very successful, some are not, you could definitely create a startup because that's exactly right. How do you get your audience? How do you market it to them? How do you get them in the door? How do you get them to come back? How do you get that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all of it. It's hilarious. It's like it touches on every fundamental act of beginning a new business. That's it. And I've started a few, but I've also taken over a few, but I also feel like it's a fresh start. If there's anything that you ever need from me or if I can get involved in any way, I love this whole thing. And that's maybe why, or maybe it's just an excuse why I haven't put anything together because I feel like there's got to be somebody that's way better at this already doing it. But if I could be involved in any way, I would love to. I'm a brand ambassador for a brand called Owl, two W's and two L's. It's an app. I may have already sent you the information. I can't remember. We're looking for experts that can answer these questions. And with the kids that you talked about that are the kids and the college kids that are in the programs, we've had a lot that call us. It's part of their curriculum now to use the Owl app to call us entrepreneurs or in the different fields, different experts to ask them questions that they've integrated it into their curriculum. If you don't mind, I'll send you that information and you can use VATO, all capitals to sign up and you'll get 10 bucks to use on the app. And wow. then you can make calls too, because you know, yeah. you're an expert at what you do, but maybe- everything. There's the curse of knowledge is a term that gets used, which is one of the problems that you have when you have a domain expertise is you tend to see every nail with your hammer and not realize that you might need a screwdriver. I get asked to sit on a lot of panels and a lot of these sort of innovation conferences and they're like, what do you think is the number one stumbling block to innovation? And I always say success. Because once you have a success in an area, you tend to quite rightly want to do it again like that because often you're successful again. That is a law of diminishing returns. You can't find me, the person who's doing it over and over again, that's actually good. They might be able to sell their 20th murder mystery book. It's not good and it's not innovative and they're not breaking new ground. That's what I would like to do. Like, I don't, I don't want to be done at 55. I want to be making discoveries. I want to have excitement and intrigue and all the stuff that everyone else, you know, gets to do when you're a young person. If you want to be a lifelong learner, you really do have to exhibit these sort of improv practices every single day. Because meaning is made in moments, right? I think we tend to think about meaning and purpose as these huge lofty things, because of course they're very important, but they are applied in how you treat the next person you talk to. I guarantee you, if you're in a bad mood, do something nice for someone. There's science behind that. There is plenty of science behind why we're wired to be connected to each other and to do nice things for each other. I, I never understood that growing up, which was like, how can giving feel better than getting? But you're right. Yeah. You give when you gift. How can I help you? How can I be of service to you type of a thing? It really does make you feel better.
I'll actually say we don't know each other super well. We've known each other, though, a long time. And I think that's an orientation you've always had. You always seem like you're someone who's trying to bump up other people and serve in that way. And I think that's just a good thing. And if we all do that, guess what? Life's so much better. It's so much better. Then you don't have things like wars. Yes, yes. At the beginning of 2022, I said to myself, this is the year of collaboration. Because I feel like I've always been on my own and it's always been me. It's always been small business. My world just expanded by agreeing, even doing this. I just have this thirst for knowledge and people that I find very interesting, such as yourself and your wife, Anne, which I would also love to talk about, Anne, a little bit, if you don't mind. I've met this wonderful community here on Fireside, Clubhouse, Social Audio. I'm working on my travel show where I get to meet people. When I come to Chicago, I would love to hang out with you. Because you're right, we've known each other for close to 30 years maybe, but I've known of you and maybe you've known of me, but we've never had a chance to do this. So thank you to Social Audio and Fireside and all that. Now, maybe the next step is in our relationship, in our parasocial relationship, is that uh, we get to maybe hang out, break bread together in Chicago, which is my travel show. I think Favreau had a dinner for six or something. Yeah, so it's so funny the way everything full circle, but I do owe your wife a big debt of gratitude. And this came up, I just interviewed Jim McCaffrey, who I believe he and I were maybe in level two. I think we figured it out. We were level two and I think Anne was our teacher there oh, in Second City and she was wonderful. I've always had this weight issue and even back then, and imagine how much more difficult when you own an Oberweiss dairy ice cream shop. Yeah. When I bought it, I was 200 pounds. When I sold it seven years later, I was 300 pounds. So mm. I gained 100 pounds in seven years because of this delicious ice cream. And anyone that's from the Chicagoland area w would instantly know what I'm talking about. Apparently I was doing a keto diet and was like, what are you doing? Because I was eating pork rinds by the bag full. And she was like, those are not good for you. What are you doing? Apparently I said something to the effect, I've lost eight pounds. It was something that came up with Jim McCaffrey and I. So I wanted to thank your wife, Anne. I don't know if I'm she's there or not or wants to come on. She's, she's at Second City Teaching right now. She is? Okay, wonderful. Do you want to talk a little bit about your family, a little bit about Anne and yeah. uh, what her role is and maybe even how you guys met? Was it at Second City? It was. Anne was running the box office when I got hired as a dishwasher. And then when I left and came back, I was about to get married, not to her. And my fiance didn't want me working so many nights. So Anne, I went to her and I'm like, hey, do you have day box office shifts open? She knew that Joyce, who was running Second City, liked me. And this was very crucial, Paul. If Joyce didn't like you, you were done at Second City. And if she did like you, the gifts were many, whether it's opera tickets or Cubs tickets or meals or whatever. She was very generous with the theater's money. Anne had the great idea of I would work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday during the day. She would work during the evening and I'd just work one night a week on Friday night. Anne was about to get married. Anne Libra, my now wife of 25 years, caught the bouquet at my first wedding. Yep. <laughs> oh, okay. I yep. see how this works. And then I went to her wedding because we're all friends. And then both of our marriages fell apart about a year and a half later. And we started dating and very quickly realized that we had found the right one. I literally asked her to marry me at Stephen Colbert's a rehearsal dinner on the dance floor. She said yes. Wow, yeah. What a great story. What a great romantic story. Maybe this is a hard question. So did you almost instantly regret 
getting married? And did she maybe feel the same? First time, yeah, yeah. The way I describe it is when I met and fell in love with Anne, it was like very similar to when I first got glasses and I realized, oh, there's definition on trees. It just changed everything. It's like, oh, I just wasn't seeing. I didn't know. I didn't know that that you could be in a relationship with someone that you love that wasn't acrimonious. I just, like, it wasn't my experience up until then. And I don't know if that's because I found the right person or who knows how these things work. I think we're highly compatible, both intellectually and all the other ways. We have wonderful children. Our son, Nick, is 24. He wants to be an actor, but he's doing tech recruiting and he's very successful in that. We lost our daughter, Nora, when she was 17 to cancer. That was three years ago. And as horrible as that is and as difficult as that has been in our life we have weathered it as well as you can as a family and we always stuck together and we had each other's backs her too and we tried to make that year when she was sick as full of joy as we possibly could it was interesting Anne was in class the other day and she has a student and she's god i recognize that last name and it turns out it's the son of Nora's oncologist, who we loved. And it didn't happen by accident, right? And it was something that Jen, who knows us well, and recommended Anne in the class. And, and this kid's terrific, too. It's really good. So it's like, one of the things about going through that level of tragedy, there's a scientific concept called post-traumatic growth. And the idea there is, you can respond one of two ways, basically, when this stuff happens. You fall apart, you drink, you divorce, and that's very common. Or you try to do what we do, which is you can't hide from the reality, but you try to incorporate it, make her memory be something that you cherish and live your life as well as you can live it. And that's the thing we're trying to do. It takes work. Therapy's good. Exercise has been huge. I was so out of shape, like when this went down in the year she was sick. And one of the promises I made myself was I'm going to get up at five in the morning, every single morning during the week and work out. And I did that and I lost weight and I gained muscle and I feel better about myself. It's not just that. We were talking about this before. It's just living life with all the tools because shit's going to happen. Really bad shit's going to happen. And this the other thing. The year that she was ill, I kept a Caring Bridge journal and I was very open about everything. And the year after she died, I shared a lot of my grief journey and had no idea up until then how many other people were dealing with tragedies because we don't tend to share those. And I think we do that at our peril. I think when we are open and vulnerable and we share these things, it creates more meaning for us and meaning for others. It really does. And it really hit hard, Kelly. Thank you for sharing that and being so open and sharing. I remember when you guys were going through that and it was just, I was like, it's unfathomable to me. I don't even know what to do or say, or if there's anything that somebody can do or say, I don't even remember if I reached out and, uh, because it's just, I can't even relate to this. I think the key is just be prepared to show up. If you're prepared to show up, some people might want to talk, they might not want that. But if you make yourself known that you're there if they need them, and so many people did that for us. We had a thriving community that was rooting her on and that she felt. We had friends who pulled so many favors to get, like Hillary Clinton tweeted at her. Oprah Winfrey sent her a whole giant package of swag. The cast of Friends made videos in Grey's Anatomy because that's what she was watching. And we're lucky because we're friends with Tina Fey and Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell and all these mega celebrities. It wasn't just that. It was also like school kids from across the world. But that only happens if you choose to live openly. It's like a muscular kindness. It's, it's hard. It's tough. This stuff's that easy because if you're really going to be open, you're going to get hurt again. But 
again, the opposite is being walled off. And I don't think that's good. No, not at all. So thank you to you and Anne and your family teaching us, I think, how to live. And maybe somebody will, will get something from that. I remember that there was a hashtag. What was the hashtag? And then maybe you no, also right. formed a, 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 some kind of a charity in her name or is there... It was hashtag Team Nora, still use it on occasion. What happened was both my kids went to Chicago Waldorf School and they had moved into this new location and had this beat up side yard. And the school approached us and said, look, we're going to turn this into a park and we want to name it after Nora. You can go to the Waldorf School at Ashland and Foster in Chicago. And Nora's Sun and Moon Garden is this amazing space with all these sort of hidden Easter eggs with her name on it and wood and steel sculptures and things to climb on. And people donated so much money to this thing. They raised millions of dollars in Nora's name. It's funny, it's literally on the drive where I go to therapy every Thursday. So there's something both sad and lovely about being able to look over there and know her memory is alive with all these children who are doing what Waldorf calls risky play. Risky, sure, because if you're climbing, or yeah. jumping, or if you're outdoors, I guess that's maybe considered risky play. <laughs> I love it. What a great metaphor for everything we've talked about. Like we started the conversation about play and we're coming to a close with it because it's like play involves risk. And in an improv, you learn to take risks and you learn that you're gonna fail and you get back up. That's what you do. I believe it was, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that there is no innovation in success. We need failure in order to grow and we need to fall down and get back up and do it a different way. And that's exactly the way business is. You're like, well, that didn't work. Let's try it this way. So you're right. After a while, you rest on your laurels and you're like, all right, I got this. And it's easier and it's done, but then you're not growing. You're not bringing it to that next level. Yep. Wonderful. Kelly, if there's anything I can ever do for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'll DM you about OWL, but I'll also, yeah. when your son's ready and he's looking, and you probably have way more connections than I do. I have a, an agent in Chicago that she would love to, I'm sure, work with him or at least awesome. look at his stuff. It's there. Just let me know. Can't wait to shake your hand again and hang out. And I hope maybe we can do this again because we've mentioned so many names from our past that are now, like you mentioned, mega celebrities. Yeah. I would love to to see whose life you changed and what they would have to say about you. Maybe this is my whole podcast because I know uh, that all these people, you know, Favreau was there at the beginning. Maybe you met Vince Vaughn as well. I can't remember if he actually did Second City or not. No, he didn't do Second City, but he was around the scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Tina Fey and Rachel Dratch and uh, Amy Poehler, all these brilliant comedic minds and improvisers. Yep. So Kelly, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day. And the work that you're doing is incredible. And I'm glad that, that I had the chance to sit here and chat with you for a bit. Okay, thanks, Paul. Any final thoughts? And then maybe where people can get a hold of you, if you don't mind, and then I'll wrap no, it up. You find me on LinkedIn, just type in my name. And then on Twitter, I'm KL Second City. And you'll have access to all my content there. And just be nice to each other. How about that? That is beautiful and very well said. Folks, thank you guys so much for being here and spending a little bit of time with us. I'll have this podcast up soon. And that if I could ask you guys to please follow across our social media, if you go to paulvato.com, but also more importantly, if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, if you could give us a like, maybe leave us a review there, that would really help. So just folks, a round of applause for Mr. Kelly Leonard. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thanks, Kelly. Bye, Paul. Take care.